Today is the summer solstice. It's night time and I'm standing here on the top of Oak Glen in the Glencree Valley, watching the light slowly disappear from the sky after sunset. My sense of the wood below me is somehow changed by the dimming light. The sound of the birdsong can still be heard, but it's gently diminishing as darkness falls. Under these skies of deepest blue, I wonder if it's possible to somehow capture the sound of this midsummer dusk. If, in some delicate way, by simply listening, you might hear the distinctly changed atmosphere of the landscape. Welcome again to the Shaking Bog podcast where art and nature meet. For this summer episode, as things are starting to reopen after lockdown, I decided to leave County Wicklow for the first time in nearly a year and I headed west to record with some remarkable people who I'd been waiting to meet for a long time. Eastkey Britain is a force of nature who seems more at home in the water than on land. Amongst her many skills and passions, she's a champion surfer, an accomplished writer and an environmental campaigner. Eastkey is publishing not one but two books this year. The first of these, 50 Things to Do by the Sea, came out in the spring. Her second, the widely anticipated Salt Water in the Blood, is to be published in September. It profoundly explores the role of the sea in nurturing the well-being of both person and planet. Eastkey generously offered us a sneak preview. I lay awake, waiting for dawn to arrive, so I could give up on the futile effort of trying to sleep. A feeling of unease was creeping up in my belly. It felt like the outer world was pressing in against my internal one, a sense of being caught in a thick fog. I felt empty of motivation or desire. The only urge I had was an intense compulsion to get outside, where the sting of cold air might help me breathe more easily. I made my way silently down the hill from my home, over the low stone wall, across the boggy field, slip sliding along wet boulders toward the shore. The cloud was low and grey. The mountain behind me was dark, but rimmed in a soft pale glow from a slowly rising sun. The tide was not yet high, still filling into the bay. I searched between the rocks for pebbles that were smooth and round. When I had a handful, I formed them into a spiral on a patch of wet sand between the rocky reefs and waited. My mind was empty while I watched the tide slowly reclaim its belongings, lifting the dried out fronds of seaweed and returning them to their fluid, supple state. The flower-like pink hydroids welcoming the return of the sea by unfurling their delicate tentacles in the rush of water. The barnacles fixed to the rocks just below the high tide line opening their shells to feed. All life on this rocky shoreline adjusted to this tidal rhythm. The certainty of the tide, knowing it always returns, comforts me. I too respond to the rising tide, shedding the layers of my warm clothing and slowly stepping into the water, feeling the persistent surge of tide returning from the open ocean. I let it take me as if I was being swallowed whole a rich return to wholeness. Sinking back into the watery embrace of the sea, my body momentarily released from the confines of gravity, floating free and held at the same time. 
I'm standing now on the seafront close to Old Head Harbour in the shadow of Crowpatrick, which appears the colour of dappled mauve in the soft evening light. It's a gentle evening, and the colour of the water could fool you into thinking that we were standing on the shores of a Caribbean beach. Except that there's something wilder about it, something more elemental in the expanse and ever-changing nature of it all. I have just returned from spending an inspiring few hours in the stunning Loch Nafui Valley in the heart of the Connemara Gwaeltocht, where I had the privilege of chatting to the wonderful basket weaver Joe Hogan, an artist of the highest calibre. He sat on small wooden stools in his cut stone workshop overlooking the glacial depths of the lake. He worked as he reflected on his craft and his life, fashioning a nest from slender heather branches, his hands moving with such instinct and ease as they transformed these natural fibres into an exquisite shelter. So I'm making um, what I would call quite a large heather nest. It's about 18 inches by a foot across and um, the framework of it is some very old pieces of heather that I would have harvested uh, over in the Aldu, big old pieces that might have been 30 or 40 years old. So there would have been two or three of those to make a framework strong enough to put some younger heather around it. Like that heather is harvested less than half a mile away. And um, the big old heather, there's a, a kind of a gorge, you probably came in that way, they call it the Aldu. And there's old heather there. The first time I saw old heather like that was, it was nearer to me, but I didn't notice it, was on the slopes of Mwilre, and where I saw these things. They must be about 40 or 50 year old stems, you know. I suppose sometimes, if you're fascinated by a material itself, it can also kind of um, encourage you to uh, maybe find a use or uh, incorporate it into one's work in some way. But the fact that the material I use is, is local is quite important to me, I must say, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be drawn to kind of buying in exotic material from another place and yeah. trying to make something of it. It's, it wouldn't be as real somehow for me. I'm, I'm from East Galway, so it's the same county, but a completely different landscape. The uh, land there is very, very flat, slow-moving rivers like the Sook that uh, floods fairly frequently. Um, but something about this landscape here, I just felt, um, I felt drawn to it. Mm. And, uh, and I felt, I suppose, that um, it, uh, it gave something to me too, you know, which I think landscape does. I don't think that's acknowledged as, as that much, but I think that certain landscapes definitely uh, nourish us a bit. Um, I suppose the natural beauty um, struck us when we were cycling around here uh, and we just thought what a wonderful thing it would be to be able to live in a place like this. Um, and although that seemed a kind of a remote enough possibility at the time, I kind of began to think about things like basket making, which turn, uh, you know, a, a location in the country into an advantage in that you can grow your own material. You know, I kind of grew up in a house where uh, everyone was fairly handy. 
and I was the least uh, skilled of all my brothers in that kind of respect, you know. Uh, but something about basket making, the fact that you could grow the material, I felt that even if I learned slowly, I could still progress at it, you know. Dolores and myself, I think, were the first people to have moved in here in that way, probably ever at that time. Um, but it, it worked out fine, I think, yeah. Um, it did take a while, and uh, in my own case then too, I, I had, um, this was still an Irish-speaking area mm -hmm. at the time, and I had kind of, well, reasonable Irish, but um, I wouldn't have been that confident about it, but uh, a neighbour, Tommy Hon Tommy, who also showed me how to make the donkey creel, um, he uh, really encouraged me to, to use Irish, you know. In fact, he kind of got to the point where I kind of ended up speaking pretty much exclusively Irish to him. And I suppose that helped because it meant that um, I had a, a, a connection then yes. that might otherwise not have. So Tommy Hon Tommy, he... he uh, I was able to make ordinary baskets, but they could have been from anywhere in the sense that, um, you know, they were part of the British and Irish professional tradition. Um, but I hadn't ever seen a donkey creel, which is a basket that's made in the ground with rods stuck into the ground. And Tommy came and visited, uh, <coughs> to welcome us to the place, first of all, and realised that I was got, hoping to make a, a living making baskets. And he said that he would be down in a month to show me how to make a creel. And uh, he was as good as his word. I'm afraid it's pretty much died away here now, but at that time, every farm would have had about maybe six or eight creels, and all the turf from the mountain bogs were brought, that was brought down by donkey and creel that time. And I suppose that's what kind of got me so interested in the traditional baskets, because you could see it was disappearing even at that time, you know, it was disappearing kind of in front of our eyes. Um, within two years of us coming here, there were very few people uh, using donkey and creel for bringing out turf, certainly within four or five. And um, lobster pot fishing, people were still using uh, willow lobster pots, at least there were a few down in Ross Row Pier there. And that also, was very much on the way out. So within three or four years, I had kind of got a lobster pot from one of the last lobster pot fishermen and just got interested in the various uh, styles of baskets around here. And then I realized over time that there were other creels and other styles from other places. For the first 20 years, I needed, first of all, to generate an income from a basket making. And um, that meant making, a, you know, X number of baskets, not necessarily a day, but a week and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then um, over the last 20 years, I've started, um, I suppose I needed to uh, rekindle some of my own uh, appreciation too. Maybe it, it had got dulled a little bit. So um, I started, incorporating bits of wood into my baskets and things like that. And that wasn't, I didn't think I'd be able to sell them to be perfectly honest with you, but I suppose certainly something that I was drawn to doing. 
And I don't always exactly know why I'm doing things. You know, I kind of follow instinct a little bit. Um, so uh, over time, I started doing more and more of these kind of experimental or artistic baskets. And now I've pretty much retired from making ordinary baskets. So um, <clears throat> that's kind of what I'm at now, is making various types of artistic baskets. And over the last three or four years, I've also started what I'm at now here today, making nests and things like that, which are kind of, I couldn't say exactly why I'm making those either. You know, it's a kind of a, a sense of um, maybe uh, exploring ideas about what it means to be at home in the world and things like that. But um, sometimes, <clears throat> and maybe kind of discovering a bit about the life of birds and things. But I don't always, I kind of try to let the stuff speak for itself a bit, you know, when I make things. Um, I don't always feel that I have to um, back it up with, um, what would you call it, an explanation. You do what you are, uh, your instinct or your uh, nature tells you to do, and I think you kind of trust on some level. There's a lot of different things woven into pretty much everything we do, I think, yeah. All of this kind of work is on some level a kind of an act of communication, you know, and um, yeah, so I hope it, it touches others as well. But I suppose for me, I get a lot of satisfaction from making the work myself. Um, I made a very large one, which I call uh, Tribute to an Eagle, but um, I'm not sure that, I have no idea what uh, material an eagle might use, but aged heather might be one of the things because actually it's around cliff tops and things like that that you'd get it. But in general, most birds use grasses rather than twigs. So my nests in that sense are not literal. You know, they're, they're not um, really containers for eggs or anything. They're more containers for ideas, I suppose, on some level. But the kind of idea of exploring um, belonging is somewhere in them all right. Um, yeah, I, I feel that's kind of one of the things that we've lost as a species. I think that, um, I think it's something, if you like, that um, animals, we, we ascribe it to animals anyway. Uh, I, th I think we can presume that they are sure of their place in the world. And I think that that's something that we as human beings have lost a little bit. Um, I can't quite say why, but I think that, uh, a more modernization, I think that's been the cost of it. Um, and I think that with that, we've also lost that sense of uh, wonderment, which I think is um, one of the things that we need to rediscover. Um, you know, en enchantment, I suppose, is, is a, it's a, it's not a very modern um, experience for most people. But I think it's something that uh, I feel quite a bit walking around the landscape here. Um, there's a lot of things that are immeasurable. And uh, I think that's one of the great joys of life.
Somehow the landscape of the West seems wholly evocative of Irish traditional music. As I travelled towards Wild Neffen, or Nafen as I learned was the correct pronunciation, to meet poet and writer Sean Lysett, the rugged expanse of wilderness seemed to carry within it the plaintive sound of the Illan pipes. So first of all, here's some haunting music, specially recorded for the podcast from the magisterial piper Ronan Brown, who lives in the depths of Connemara. field guide. This script is a willow bending in the breeze of a June evening, but don't take my word for it. Watch the pressure and slack of the new shoots yielding, then giving back to themselves. Who knows what you might see among the pollarding, volatile eyes winking from the trees, and in an old wren's nest, look, a mouse. Surely a river flowing slowly, mirroring light, where the earlier mists meant that the night had been other, and maybe someone coming downstream with a split cane rod, a mere boy whose boots are slapping the irises as he strides out to meet you. Now be warned, this young innocent will reveal himself in a slip of the tongue. 
As well as a poet, Sean Lysett is also an inspired nature writer. We began our walk discussing his earlier biography of the influential Irish naturalist Robert Lloyd Prager. Prager was many things, but I suppose his main vocation was as a botanist, as a field botanist. Mm. And starting in the 1880s and into the 1890s and beyond, he conducted a very extensive campaign to map the distribution of Irish plants in particular. Uh, he, he was a Victorian figure, if you like, and he was very exercised by the fact that um, in Britain there was a lot of detail known about the distribution of British plants, but the same wasn't the, the case in Ireland. So he wanted to set the record straight and provide an accurate and comprehensive account of the distribution of Irish plants. I suppose the thing, the thing is really that um, Prager straddles the scientific and the literary. Um, and it, it has taken some time to recognise him as a writer. I mean, a lot of people would understand Prager as a, as a botanist and to a lesser extent a geologist and a mountaineer. But his kind of literary qualities haven't always been acknowledged. And that was, I think, part of my task, or the challenge, if you like, of the study I wrote. It was to show that he was also a, a literary writer and he belongs not just to the history of science, but to wider culture. So yes, he, he, he's there, I think, as a presence. So not just about the technicalities of geology and, and plants and so on, but just as an inspiration, seeing the landscape as something to, to value. So there are some lovely old uh, pines along here now, so as we're going up the river. Yes, so we've come down from our, our viewing point with the beautiful panoramic view, and we've come down into the, you, well, you can describe maybe where we are now, Sean. Well, we're going along a river that has a couple of different names, um, depending on which map you're looking at, but we'll call it the Holes River for now. And some of the very oldest uh, conifers in this area are, have been planted along here. Uh, there are some Monterey pines. They've got very deeply fissured bark. Um, there are some magnificent old lodgepoles and firs. And now we're walking among the flesh-coloured boles of uh, Scots pines. Okay, yes. And there'll even be a, a few examples of uh, Western hemlock on our way up here. This, uh, this river divides quite soon uh, at a place called Gowlon. If you go back to the Irish, the Gowlon or Gowlog is a fork. So the river divides and the right hand arm of the river um, comes out of uh, Loch Bonavila and this is one of the migration routes for the salmon. The salmon run up oh. this river uh, and they spawn in these streams in winter. We won't see them today but it's still nice to have that memory tucked away yes. of salmon on their spawning beds in December. 
And would this Nathan, Wild Nathan Park um, National Park be sort of your, your go-to place? Or was it specifically for the book or is it somewhere that you, that, that's very special to you and why would that be if it is? I guess um, it's a place that's convenient to me, mm. um, apart, apart from the literary projects. Uh, I've come up here over the years to walk, to go fishing, um, to do my bit for citizen science, you know, doing some recording. Um, and gradually then, I suppose, you feel a, a certain sense of ownership. Maybe it's a male thing that we like to have a, a territory a place where we have some, where we can speak with some kind of knowledge and, and assurance. Now there's uh, some larch up here as well. They're quite lovely at this time of the year as well. The softer colour of the larch in there at the back. And I'm thinking that uh, this is a forest that will continue to evolve. I mean, I think it's well known that nothing in nature ever is static. Nature is constantly evolving. So we have deer. We've had deer here for about 30 years. Um, and then we've had birds like crossbills, uh, siskins. Uh, they've come in here. They've done very well in this environment. I wouldn't say really that um, there's anything particularly literary uh, at the outset about my interest. I think you might call it just a, a curiosity about what's around us. Um, scientific, if you like, or maybe pseudo-scientific. But I think the literary thing then comes, comes later. As you can hear, Sean very generously took the time to guide me into the heart of his beloved Neffenberg range of mountains. His most recent book, Wild Neffen, evocatively charts his journey into this remote place, expertly interweaving a sense of place, mythology and history with minute observations and a poet's gentle touch. In, in my case, I suppose you could say it might be a way of self-discovery. I think there is that impulse. Uh, you are perhaps trying to find out something about yourself or maybe in the course of a walk or an experience there is something that you discover about yourself. Um, on the other hand, there is a, a contrary impulse to get away from yourself, just to get out of your own skin and into uh, a different experience, something that takes you away from your own preoccupations. The beauty of this area is that it hasn't really been very densely written about before. There isn't a great tradition of inquiry up here. Um, so I, you might almost say I had the place to myself. I, I discovered a way of writing about a place. In the case of Eagle Country, I was trying to revisit the places where eagles had, uh, had bred or had been observed before they became extinct. And that gave me a way of working. That's what any nature writer wants, I guess. It's, it's a way of working, a kind of template that will give, give a shape uh, to a series of walks. And then Wild Nathan sort of 
emerged from that as a kind of winter counterpart mm. to the summer excursions. And I suppose it's, it's what, what was very interesting to me as, a, um, as an outsider who doesn't speak Irish is that whole, you know, this, this sort of loss really that I have in not knowing Irish. Well, that sense of loss is uh, very acute in this part of the country because we know that uh, up to relatively recently, Irish was the spoken language of large parts of North Mayo. Some of that knowledge can be preserved within, within English. So if someone says to you, that's Cúrinagapal, that's the curry of the horse or the horses. And I'm thinking of a local man I met on the other side of the, the mountain who said, well, at one time, of course, people left horses out here to graze at a particular time of the year when they weren't being used for, for farm work. So that knowledge is still there within English, but the particular vehicle for that bit of knowledge is an Irish place name. Mm. You know? mm. So I, I don't think the loss is absolute. Mm. You know, language is more diverse and more adaptable than perhaps you might think. I suppose it's just remembering to respect those, you know, what, what, what the original name holds and the, and yeah. the meaning yeah. of that. And that's where the work of map makers and folklorists and perhaps someone like myself um, can actually contribute to local understanding because I've met a couple of local people who said, I, I like what you did there with the, the place names. Yes. Because, uh, oh, my, my father has a lot of that now. Of course, he's gone now and so on. So you can actually restore something, not just for an outsider, but for the, for the local people themselves. And was that one of the reasons that you, you took these projects on, um, to, to help to restore that? That history and... Without be sounding too grandiose mm. about it, I suppose, mm. uh, I didn't have a big sense of emission, but th there was a, a smaller sense of satisfaction, if you like, mm. in being able to um, fix mm. on a page something uh, that would be recognised by l mm. people in the locality. Mm. Well, you go out... Uh, I suppose, equipped with certain expectations, uh, bits of knowledge. But I'm always asking myself, you know, what, what, what was that sedge again? Or, mm, I used to know the name of that mushroom and I've forgotten it now. And you, you go out on, on any given day with a certain series of expectations. In the case of natural history, you're thinking, Oh, it'd be great now if I could see the hen harrier. It's the right time of year. They come through here. There's a few of them. Will I see a hen harrier? And usually you don't see the thing you expect to see, but you'll see something else. You'll be taken by surprise. And that's something I always enjoy. Happens again and again. I went off one evening there recently uh, to listen for grasshopper warblers. And on my way, uh, there I saw a pine marten on the side of the road and I had, hadn't been thinking about pine martens at all. So there's always in a, in a place like this, um, probably in any uh, place where you've got that natural element, 
there's always the capacity for things to surprise you. Merlin at Tarsicon Moor. This is where the wizard lives, still being realised to cleave a range over the heatherings of a morning, a surprise out of the mist. This is where the horizon keeps an old nimble jack away from the chattering city, so no one can repute him to a bad end and no industry can exile him any farther. He needs nothing more than the posts he nominates with his feet. This wire, this riverbank, this facing of stones to accommodate his desert eye. And these two foxholes on the far side, the stops of a flute he plays when he lifts the glittering river. But could you find him if you looked? There has to be another god to upstage, a different day that starts with maps. And just as you stop for a Eucharist of sandwiches, suddenly Pippet, the Redeemer, is gone. And there he is, with the mountain on his shoulders. He's carrying the valley's only song. The great Michael Viney's description of Sean Lysett as a gifted chronicler, bard and Sherpa rings true for me because I left our brief excursion into the wilderness with a deep sense of gratitude for a wondrous place that I may never have otherwise visited. Travelling into the remote reaches of Mayo and Connemara somehow more deeply connected me to a part of Ireland that I'd always felt to be rather impenetrable. It may be just a romantic notion, but it felt like this trip, coinciding as it did with the solstice, brought me into a more intimate appreciation of the changing seasons and cycles of life with a promise of freedom somehow, or perhaps the possibility of a simpler, more connected and less encumbered way of being. the old medieval town of Athen Rye, the home place of poet and writer Elaine Feeney, who has recently won several prizes for her distinctive first novel, As You Were. Elaine has that rare gift of being able to say it as it is, with a keen incisiveness and a strong feeling for spoken word, and yet she always manages to touch the heart with her poetry and lyricism. Bog Fairies is a poem that I wrote about my memories uh, growing up in rural Ireland in Athen Rye and saving turf at the bog from a child and, and an adolescent. And perhaps my um, feelings of inadequacy, maybe in some ways, or the monotony of the work. So when we'd foot turf and we'd build it into triangular shapes, I always imagined that it was far more exciting and that perhaps we were building it when I was a child we were building little houses for bog fairies and later on I started to use escapism and imagine myself in many unlikely historical scenarios um you know to get through maybe what can be quite tedious and hard work uh so this is a poem called bog fairies from my collection the radio was gospel the heather like pork belly cracked underneath my feet the horizon, like nougat, melted its pastel line at the heat edge, blue fading to white light. We stacked rows of little houses for bog fairies, 
Wet, mulchy sods evaporating under our small palms. Crucifixions of dry, brittle crosses formed the skeleton. My narrow ankles stood parallel to them. Coarse and tough like the marrow of the soul, like the skeletons crucified under the peat. The turf will come good, my father said, when the wind blows to dry it. We dragged ten, ten, twenty bags with the sulphury waft of cat piss along a track dotted with deep black bog holes. Over a silver door, like a snail's oily trail, leaving a map for the moon or for bog fairies to dance on the mushy earth. And behind this door, once upon some time, old women sat in black shawls, bedding down irregulars and putting kettles on to boil for labouring girls. But I was gone. I was dragging comrades from the Somme. I was pulling concords in line with Swedish giants. I was skating on the lake in Central Park. I was crouched in the green at Sam's Cross. I was touring Rubber Soul at Hollywood Bowl. I was marching on Washington with John Lewis. I was in the Chelsea Hotel with Robert Mapplethorpe. He was squatting on my lap with his lens, swearing to God to Janis Joplin I could find her a shift. Nothing is impossible when you blow like that, girlfriend. I sang Come As You Are in Aberdeen with Union Converse, petrol blue eyeliner and mouse holes in my Connemara jumper. I was anyone but me. I was anywhere but here. We rushed to hurry before summer light would fade because animals needed to be washed and fed and turf needed to be stacked. And all the cold talk of our youth would be said behind our hands because light was the ruler as it closed in around us, like the dark on the workmen deep in the channel tunnel that night. The black light killed the purple heather, yet I danced on the crackle in the dusk. I crackled on the dust in the heather. My dance on the heather turned to dust. I've now returned home to the Glencree Valley. I'm happy to see my animals, including our swallows that safely returned to build their home once more in the outside corner of our kitchen door. With each passing day, the voices of the nestlings grow stronger, constantly demanding food from their parents as they tirelessly swoop back and forth with small offerings from dusk until dawn. Standing here in my garden on this warm evening, the verdant lushness of summer feels somewhat heady and intoxicating. The greens seem darker and deeper, the foliage and the wildflowers seem more abundant, and I'm pleased to say that our vegetables are thriving. Some see the summer solstice as a turning point, beyond which there is only the shortening of the days and the dimming of the light, but I prefer to see it as a celebration of that light and a calling to more fully immerse ourselves in the exuberance of the season. We've waited for it, and I want to relish it while it lasts. The next time you hear about the Shaking Bog, it will be for our festival, which is scheduled for the 10th to the 12th of September. Please remember to put the dates in your diary, as we hope you will join us for a feast of creative engagement and nature immersion. In the meantime, make the most of the summer and take good care. The Shaking Bog is delighted to have presented this podcast in collaboration with Culture Nature, Mermaid Arts Centre in Bray and the Arts Council. It was edited by Bjorn McGilla and mixed by Steve McGrath 
with special thanks to Ray Harmon for his music and to all the artists and contributors.